of what we could call competing narratives, right? Competing stories. And sometimes it's hard to know what really is the truth. And, um, and so Eric, he's a really good friend of mine. We've known each other for a number of years now. Um, him and I, you know, we try to get together on a regular basis and we love going deep in the scriptures and, um, and, and just with, you know, studying together and reading and learning and really just getting to know the heart of God. And so we've been talking for some time about, you know, the, the overarching story of the Bible, like the, the grand story of scripture. And we've both have been really captivated by how powerful the story of the Bible is. And, and we recognize that there's a hunger for that story in our culture and in the church that, you know, it's a story. Typically when we're taught the Bible, we're kind of taught it in little pieces, you know, little, little small Sunday school stories. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but oftentimes we don't really know the overarching, what we call the meta narrative of scripture, the big story. And, um, and so part of the reason for wanting to do this is because God tells, he speaks when he speaks his truth to us, he does it not in like these, you know, logical one-liners, but he does it in the form of a story. And if we can catch the truth in the form of a story, it has a way of captivating our heart and our imagination and, um, um, and, and changing the way we think about God. And so that's part of the reason for why we're wanting to do this. Um, I could say a whole lot more, but I'll probably save that for another week. So, <laughs> so anyways, let me introduce to you, Eric Wimberly, super good friend of mine. He's an elder in our church, and I think you're going to be really excited about this. And I hope to see you next week as well. All right, let's jump into it. All right, friends. All right, well, let's do this. So maybe we'll meet in person some other time. I'm not going to be looking directly at you guys because we got people in here. So I'm just, you know, looking at everybody. And the other thing is, William, if you can just pay attention to the chat, because if for some reason you guys can't hear, please send out a message. Um, yeah, or text William, whatever the case may be. But uh, we're, we're going to get into this. So like William was saying, um, man, it, it, if even if you've never read the scripture before, or if you have, you know, there's a chance like, uh, you know, I didn't come to faith until I was 19 years old. But as a younger person, even when I was a kid, there were a couple of times I tried to read the Bible, you know, and you, I don't know, maybe make it to numbers or Leviticus. And then it's like, what in the world's going on? But even as I got older, still, it's it, it can be it can be kind of tricky. And so we're going to take a look at, at Jesus. But in order to look at Jesus, we got to go back to the beginning of the story. And the reason, the reason being is because if, if we just read the gospels, which is powerful, which is the, about the life of Jesus, the stories of Jesus, but we don't know the old Testament or like the, the past, the history that leads up to it, then it's hard to really understand what it's all about, you know, and then we'll tend to see Jesus from our own eyes from the 21st century. And even though he speaks to us now, the only way to really understand him is from where he comes from. And so, um, you know, recently my son got into doing Rubik's cubes and I'm, I'm like a, 
I was actually born in the seventies, but I'm like an eighties kid mostly. And so Rubik's cubes were huge and I had one, but we didn't have YouTube. We didn't have anything like that. So there was like no way to figure out how in the world to solve this stinking thing. I didn't even know it was possible to solve it, you know, like, and I mean, we have one for years. Every once in a while you could like maybe do one side, but still the colors would be all jacked up. Um, but I, it's kind of funny because recently he got into it. And of course, you know, you can look it up on YouTube and they've got all the algorithms. You learn these algorithms. And if you just do the right algorithm, you will solve the thing. Uh, it's unbelievable, right? And there's there's one main algorithm. I'm not going to teach it right now that you got to know. And I'm not fully, fully there yet. But you can see there's so many pieces on this thing. And, and when you don't know how to solve it, it just seems like a blend of the more you start turning it around, the more you think you almost got it. And then it just kind of falls apart on you. And sometimes it's like that, especially swimming through the Old Testament. And it's like, you know, how do I get a vision for what's being said without getting lost in, in the forest, you know? And, and just so I, my hope is to tonight just lay out what i think is like a really powerful algorithm if you could say say that i was going to say like key but you know one particular strand or stream if if you get this and and many of you guys might already have it i don't know where everybody is but i get excited every time i talk about this stuff um it will help make more sense of this thing and and it's not that you know the, the the analogy breaks down because of course there's so much more than just solving a rubik's cube but it'll make a lot more sense and i think then when we get to some of the future like i'm i, I got some exciting stuff to talk about um that we're gonna get into and really the way to understand like william said our day to day and even where we're going is to understand the past so we have to understand where where the beginning to understand the end and that's that's the angle and and i think we can do that in just nine sessions even though it won't be comprehensive but we're going to take a look at what i'm calling the promise and and this has been one of the most instrumental ways of helping me understand the story like one of the main streamlines that's going on in the scriptures so Let's jump into this. Um, let me see. Um, there we go. So I've got Matthew 1, 1. And if you've ever read and just open up Matthew, it's like the, it's the first gospel. And I'm not going to go through this, but you re read it, it. And this is usually what will happen is, okay, so the book of the genealogy, uh genealogy of jesus christ the son of david the son of abraham and then it starts going uh abraham was the father of isaac and isaac's the father of jake you know and it just goes on and on and on so usually what happens is we just skip on down to like verse 18 <laughs> you know just skip right over that genealogy and go right on into like the the birth of christ and and just pick up from there because it just seems kind of random and it does like in our day and age especially as americans you know we don't think of ourselves as even being part of our own family often like i'm the son of so and so but that was your identity and there's i think there's a reason historically why genealogy has been so important doesn't matter what culture or tribe uh, unless you're an american you know but i mean throughout history generally people identified themselves by the family they came from and so we're going to take a look at this and one of them is I'm just going to point out a couple of things. We're not going to read through. Don't worry. We're not going to read through this gene genealogy here, but it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so first, I just want to point out that that word Christ and just, you know, 
if we ask, what is it, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? You know, we hear Jesus Christ. And, and I, I mean, if you ask a believer or you just ask yourself, like, do I know what Christ means? And hopefully we know what it means, but it, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, well, yeah, you know, his name's Jesus Christ. Like, Christ. He's, he's the Christ. Okay. So what does that mean? He's the Christ. Um, is that his last name? Uh, Jesus Christ, you know, but no, it's, it's not his last name. So Christ is actually, it's a Greek word for the anointed one. And it means anointed because when, when Israel had, when they, when they instituted a new King, they would anoint that King with oil. And so they called them the anointed one. Okay. So the, the word in Greek is Christ or Christos or however you say it. Okay. I, I don't know other languages, but I do know that. But if you look in the old Testament, that same word instead of Christ is Messiah. And so we we've heard that Messiah, Messiah and Christ are equivalent. They're the same thing. One is just Messiah is he a Hebrew word. Christ is Greek, but it means the same thing. And what it means is the King of Israel. Okay. It means the King of Israel and it means um, in more specifically, it's the throne name of Israel. Like if you think of, um, if you think of Egypt and they had pharaohs, right? So we all know that probably at some point in school, we learn about some pharaohs or stuff like that. And Pharaoh is the, is the throne name of Egypt. So when you're talking about Egypt, you know, and we don't call the king of, of other nations and never have Pharaoh right but we understand that pharaoh is the king of egypt because it's the particular throne name messiah is the particular throne name of the jewish people of israel of the nation of israel if that makes sense and we're going to dig into how that that idea you know like came from seed form and grew all the way into what it means like as jesus christ in the day that he was walking the earth and even now so look at looking back um, how in the world did like, okay, most of you have probably heard, or you might know that in the days of Jesus, so Rome was ruling over, they were the, the dominant empire of the day and they were ru ruling over, um, Israel. And there was this, this, um, pain in the heart of the, is the, the Jewish people because they were so oppressed and it, they had gone for 400 years without having a king. And so there was this hope for the Messiah and it was growing and it was really growing and growing. And more and more, there were these false messiahs that would come along and claim to be the Messiah or claim to be the Christ. And so that was the time that Jesus was born into is the time where, you know, they're looking for who's, who's the King, who's going to be the Messiah that's going to bring deliverance for us. And that understanding of Christ, I think is a lot different than it's not different, but it had grown over time from if you go back to the days of David. So you notice it says, Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's the, the other key. Now, the son of Abraham, we'll get to that. But I want to take a look. Just first of all, Jesus is the son of David. And, and this one point I'm trying to make is that this is a critical thing to understand is that let's first, before we get into it, just David in general, who is David? Um, if you've ever heard the story of David and Goliath, <laughs> you know, little David, the, the boy that went out and fought Goliath, that's the David that we're talking about when it says Jesus Christ, the son of David. So we're talking about the David who fought Goliath, who grew up a shepherd in the fields. He had a bunch of brothers. He got left out in the fields when his, his dad was called by the prophet 
um, he said, Hey, the prophet of Israel came to their house and was like, Hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to anoint one of your sons to be King. David was thought so lowly of that. He was left out in the fields. He didn't even get called in while his other brothers got called in. Well, it turns out David was the one that got anointed by Samuel. He said, he's like, where, where's the, this couldn't be it because I mean, the Lord told me it's none of these guys. And so they had to go call David from the fields. So that same David goes on, he fights Goliath. Nobody knows he's been anointed king, but eventually he becomes the king of Israel um, through, uh, if you go read first and second Samuel. So that's the one we're talking about. We're talking about David. And this is a picture of David taken, I mean, a thousand years ago, if you can believe it. I mean, I'm just kidding. No, we didn't have cameras back then. But, you know, this is one of those statues. So we're talking about King David, the, the David and Goliath story, that same kid became the king. And that is, that's a critical understanding for who Jesus is, because Jesus is referred to often as the son of David. So I just want to establish that. So another thing about this here that, that increases the weight of who Jesus is, is that God gave a promise to David. And really, David did live about a thousand years before Jesus which is pretty wild. And God gave a specific promise to David. Not only did he anoint him king and say, hey, I've chosen you, but there was a time when David was actually king and God sent the prophet Nathan to him. And I'm just gonna, I've got it on the screen. And this is also in, in uh, I think it's 2 Samuel 7, but this is 1 Chronicles 17. And God gives him this, this promise because David wanted to build a house for God. He's like, man, I, I want to build him a house. And basically God sends the prophet and he's like, look, I don't, I don't need a house. You know, like I dwell in the heavens. I don't need brick and mortar. That's not really what I want from you, David. I appreciate your heart, but he does give him a couple of promises. And this is one critical one. He says, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I'm going to raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons. And, oh, well, I went, sorry about that. And one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. And I'll confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And so notice I, I underlined that um, forever. And it says his throne shall be established forever. So basically God's saying, look, you're going to have a son and your son's going to rule on that throne. And, and the understanding of course, is that he, it's not just son, it's sons, your offspring, but there is this pointing towards there is a particular son and the throne will last forever. Not, and not, not just like till the end of time, but forever, like even beyond whatever the end of time is into the next age. So God's giving him a radical promise. And if you've studied history, like we're talking about Egypt, even, and you understand Pharaohs, you know, one family can rule for a long time, but eventually somebody gets jealous, somebody assassinates somebody or somebody rises up. It just, it doesn't go on forever. Or you look at the Kings in Britain or wherever, you know, you watch, I never watched game, the whatever Thrones, the, it was a game of Thrones or game of Thrones. I mean, the, the idea that the throne can pass on from generation to generation forever is a pretty wild idea, especially for the time of David, okay? Because eventually somebody else takes it over. But God says, no, you're going to have a son from now on. If there's somebody on the throne of Israel, it's going to be directly one of your descendants, okay? So David does go on and he has a son named Solomon, but he has many other sons. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back around to David, okay? So I want to establish that about this promise. And I hope you're noticing that that's a foreshadowing of Jesus because Jesus is what? He's the son of David. 
Okay. Now, another another prophecy is Isaiah 9. I got this is a little Christmas card because we're coming up on Christmas and you see the pretty Christmas cards. And Isaiah 9 is one of those, you know, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And it is, it's an amazing uh, uh, prophecy. And I'm not knocking out, I like it on Christmas cards but it is it's actually a very powerful one and it lines up with that promise that i just said so the prophet isaiah is coming and he's reaffirming what god had told david and he's saying look there's going to be this one he's going to be he's going to come in he's going to be all these things wonderful counselor almighty god but the the government is going to rest on his shoulders and he's talking about the government of the world of the earth not just not just of one kingdom he's saying the entire government is going to rest on his shoulders and the yoke he doesn't say here but before it says basically the yoke of oppression is going to be lifted off of y'all's shoulders because he's going to take the weight of government on his shoulders and he's going to be on the throne of david forever and his his uh kingdom's going to increase forever it's actually going to increase and increase from this time forth and forevermore so that's a radical promise and it's talking about jesus that's why that's on those christmas cards and and that's what the gospels the the apostles when that when they taught others this is one of the prophecies they pointed to saying unto us this is the child that we're talking about and when the you read about the magi and you know it's like the three wise king kings actually it wasn't just three kings and they were very powerful and they were actually magi that came from babylon and they showed up in jerusalem and they they show up to the king's house man they show up where herod is because they're thinking hey top of the government if the king is born because they saw it in the heavens they saw the constellations and all the stars lined up and virgin the, virgo was in the in the heavens and she was crowned and and actually you know we have all of the star charts so you can look back in history and look at any star chart at any given point in time and guys i'll just go off shooting off talking so here so just know i'm gonna i'm just gonna go off but but the the way it worked is they could see and there were many other things happening but they could see the constellation virgo and they could see that she was crowned with 12 stars actually nine of them are in the constellation of leo leo is the king constellation because regulus is the king's star in that king constellation and it was aligning right on top of her head and there were three other planets which made 12 stars and you'll see how relevant that is in a minute and there were other strange things that were happening that they were seeing but these guys knew how to read the stars okay and they were they were the brilliant well-educated men of babylon they were the magi going back to the time of daniel and so if you know anything about daniel 400 years before daniel had been enslaved he was a jewish you know jewish boy enslaved in babylon and he had brought the the revelation of the scriptures to the magi so there were still people 400 years later that still were carrying the tradition taught to them through through Daniel, not to say all the Magi were, but these particular ones were, and it was enough for them to, to mount up on their camels and come across the desert. And they came, I guarantee you, they came with many men who were like their guards. So this is a big deal. This big entourage is coming in. It's not just these three little wise men coming in. It wasn't just, nowhere does it say it's three wise men, okay? It's it's an entourage of very powerful men with some guards and swords and, and lots of, you know, lots of money, okay? And they roll in and Herod and all of Israel is like, what is going on? Whoa, hey, I can't hit my mouse like that, y'all. And, and he, he's, he's, what in the world's going on? So he's panicked. And 
you know, they're going, well, where's the king? He was born, right? And he's going, whoa, wait, wait a minute, what king? Because Herod is the king, but he's a puppet king. He's not the true king of Israel. He's the king that the Romans, that Caesar put there, to, but he's not, he's not a Jew. He's not from Israel. He's not from the throne of David. He's a puppet king. He's a poser. And, and he, well, he's, uh, I, you know, Herod's his own story, okay? Um, but one thing he did do is build the temple, but he's panicked. And so, of course, like any good jealous king would do, he says, hey, look, when you find him, tell me where he is. And why, why does he say that? Because he knows he's like, as soon as you find him, we're going to kill him. And so when he does later find out where the Messiah was born, he sends his men and kills every child, under others, every son born within the past two years in that city. All of them were killed because he wanted to make sure that no throne, no, no king would take his throne. And you're talking about a baby. I mean, so, but that's the way the world worked back then. A two-year-old, a, a, a newborn was a threat if they, had, if they were the true heir to the throne. My point is that Jesus is the true heir to the throne. He was walking around Nazareth. He was walking around Israel and he was a threat to the Pharisees and he was a threat to the powerful because he was actually the heir to the throne. You couldn't be of the tribe of Benjamin. You couldn't be of the tribe of Naphtali. There were 12 tribes. You had to be a direct descendant of David through a particular line. And otherwise, it doesn't matter how good of a teacher Jesus could have been. It doesn't matter how many miracles he could have done. He would not have been a rightful heir to the throne. And they knew that he was a rightful heir to the throne. That's pretty wild. There are other prophecies that he fulfilled that are very specific, that are almost, I mean, not just almost, they're impossible that he fulfilled all of those. But one of them is that he's actually a son of David. Okay. So if he wasn't, nobody would have paid him any attention, or at least not the Pharisees. But they knew this and they were just like Herod, you know, in the days when he was, when he was older. But when he was young and these magi show up, they, they understood this prophecy of Isaiah. They understood the prophecy of Micah that, that was saying, hey, that he's going to be born in Bethlehem because it's actually designated what city. You couldn't just be the son of David. You had to be born in a particular city in all of Israel, okay? And it happened to be Bethlehem, the one that David, uh, that David was born in. So that's my, that's my first major point. And we're going to dig into this is what does it mean that Jesus is the heir to the throne. There's a couple other promises I'm just going to throw out. I love this one in Jeremiah 33. God says, actually, he says, if you can break my covenant with the day and with the night, think about God saying like, I spoke the heavens and the earth and the sun is set in its place and the earth runs its course and the stars and the constellations work like a mathematical chart. And they've never met. I mean, you want to talk about being consistent. Have you ever tried to be consistent for like three weeks at something where it's like, I'm going to do this for three weeks, or I'm going to do this for five weeks or five months or five years for that matter. But you want to talk about consistency. God's saying, look, I, I spoke it and it's a covenant. It's a done deal. It, and, and it works like a clock and it doesn't, it never stops and you can't break that covenant. But if you can, then I'll break my covenant with David. But otherwise I'm telling you, David's going to have a son on the throne. Well, that was looking pretty bleak in Jeremiah's day because up until the time of Jeremiah, there from the time of David, there had been kings on the throne and every single king had been a direct descendant of David. 
unbelievable, but it's true. Every single king from the time of David to the time of Jeremiah, which was uh, more than 500 years at this point, had all been direct descendants. That is something, centuries of the same lineage. And then they get taken off to Babylon. They get enslaved. The city is in ruins. The nation is destroyed. Israel, the Jewish people get drug off in slavery, the ones that weren't killed, to Babylon, including Daniel. And so here we've got Jeremiah saying, look, I know it looks bad. It looks like how in the world is this covenant going to be kept? But I'm telling you, God hasn't broken his covenant. And God's saying, Jeremiah, tell him I haven't broken my covenant. Because see, when a nation is destroyed, historically, if they can't restore it within a generation, there's never been a nation in the world after one generation of losing their, their identity and losing their land, have they ever come back into existence? Okay. Now, radically, when, when Israel was in slavery in, in Babylon, they were there for, like Daniel said, or actually Jeremiah said, they were there for the 70 years. And then they were actually sent back by the King Cyrus, which was a miracle. So he's the Persian king, one of the most powerful Persian kings, one of the most powerful kings up until Alexander the Great, who modeled himself after Cyrus. And this is in Isaiah 45, the prophet. And Cyrus is spoken of. And Cyrus actually sends a, a group of Jewish people back, including one of David's descendants whose name is Zerubbabel or Zerubbabel, or I don't know how you pronounce it, but he's, he's one of David's direct descendants. So he would be an heir to the throne. Now they're not given authority to set up their own government. So he can't be the king. Okay. But he can still be like a, a governor. Okay. So they're still under the auspices of Persia. And then eventually they're handed off to Rome, but they're never, they're never able to be a nation that actually has a government, if that makes sense. And under Rome, they become oppressed, deeply oppressed. And so there's this groan for 400 years, like, man, God, you promised that we would have not just our land, but we would have our king. And the promise is actually a little deeper than that. So here's, we're not going to go through all this, but I'm just throwing this up. You've got the genealogy from Matthew and the genealogy starts from Solomon. Solomon is David's direct. Sorry, if I'm pointing at the camera, I'm pointing at my screen. <laughs> I'm not pointing at you, but um, Solomon is the direct son, the first son, and he's the king. These are all the kings going all the way down to Jehoiakim. And they were all firstborn sons. So the firstborn son of Solomon is Rehoboam and then Abijah and then Asa and Jehoshaphat. And they're all firstborn sons directly descended from David. I don't know if you know how radical that is in history, but the fact that, like God said, you're always going to have a son on the throne. And then Jehoiakim is the one that's taken off to Babylon. So the rest of the descendants are never actually ruling kings, but that bloodline carries on to Joseph, who is Matt, who is, I'm sorry, not Matthews, but Jesus's father in the sense, but he's not his, his father by DNA because by birth, he's actually, he's actually like a, a, an adopted father, right? Because Jesus is actually the son of Mary who is a virgin. So that's the lineage. So through his dad, he is directly a descendant, but also in Luke, you have a, a genealogy and it's Mary's genealogy that goes back also to David. So whether it's her, the mom or the dad, she's that he is an heir double time. Okay. So I'm just pointing this out because 
it's a it's a radical thing we need to understand that jesus is the legitimate heir to the throne which is so it wasn't just his teaching it wasn't just his miracles it was the fact that they had investigated him and found out that not only was he a son of david not only did he live in nazareth so they they were thinking ha ah, he's just from nazareth but they found out he's from bethlehem it says in john that pontius pilate knew the reason why they wanted to kill him was because they were jealous they were jealous they were fearful because not only was this man a better teacher than them and not only could he cast out demons and actually heal people he was actually a direct heir of david okay so <laughs> but that's just part of the puzzle you know thinking back to the rubik's cube i don't even know where i set it down i mean i must have where is it oh here it is i'm gonna solve it now i'm kidding but but actually that's just one little piece and there's a lot more and william you'll have to stop me you know like when we hit uh you know if we if i go too long because i'll just keep jiving and i go off script too so i've got slides but that doesn't mean anything Okay, but I'm going to take I'm going to take this deeper. So you're getting kind of part of the story here, but still, it might seem a little bit blitzed up, especially if you haven't really heard the story. But I'm going to take you back and we're going to connect this. Okay, and then it's going to start to fall in place where the rest of what I just said is going to make way more sense. So we got to pull it back. Oh, look at that part of the puzzle. <laughs> we got to actually go back to Genesis, Genesis 3:15 yeah and and man i love the first three chapters of genesis you could spend i, I mean you it, it's actually designed for us to not have all the answers it gives so many answers it's profound but it was never meant to give all the answers so that's that's part of the way this is designed i mean god's a brilliant this is one of the most brilliant pieces of literature in all of history but it's also it's god's word um so I'm going to have to hold myself back, refrain, and just focus on one part of Genesis 3. Genesis 1 starts off with creation. Genesis 2 gets in specifically to Adam and Eve and to the garden and to the land that they're in. Genesis 3 hones into the garden, and it's the time when Adam and Eve are tempted. And I say Adam and Eve because even though Eve ate the fruit, if you read, if you read closely, there's just a little side note. Adam was standing right there because she handed it to him and he ate of the fruit too. So she didn't have to like go off and call and say, Hey, Adam, everything that went down in the temptation, Adam was right there the whole time. So he played his own role in the fall. He's, he, it, it, you know, the, historically there was the bad rap that Eve got, but Adam was the one who had the authority. He's the one who let the snake come in. He's the one who let his wife be seduced right in front of his face. He was the one who was passive and didn't open his mouth and speak a word. And that's, that's, that's actually one of the struggles of men is passivity, right? He was never meant to be somebody who just kept his mouth shut. And so he let that thing roll in. And for whatever reason, even though God had told him face to face, Eve wasn't one, the one that was there when God told Adam face to face why we don't eat of this tree. Okay. If you read the scripture, God actually told Adam, don't eat of this tree before Eve had actually come on the scene. So Eve got this, even though she did have a firsthand relationship with God, as far as we know, Eve was told this command by Adam. So she didn't, it doesn't make her innocent, but 
he Adam is the one who heard it straight from the mouth of God, right? And he was the one who was given direct authority. So here we are in this scenario where the, the serpent has seduced both of them in their own way and tricked them and said, hey, look, you know, if you eat of this tree, you're going to be like God, right? You're going to know good and evil. And there's a lot to unpack there. This is not felt bored Sunday school stuff. I mean, this and it should be taught in Sunday school. I'm not knocking that, but I'm saying, man, I mean, especially for those of if you've grown up in church, sometimes we think like it in these in these um like cartoon like <laughs> you know like it's this cardboard story thing and this this is some radically deep stuff um and even if you listen to people who don't profess to be believers like if you listen to jordan peterson that guy he's done teachings on genesis and and i mean millions of people listen to him you know and it's funny because there was actually a book written by some catholic priests I'm trying to figure out why is it that this guy can teach on the scriptures and, and we're out, you know, we want to do the same thing and we can't barely get anybody to listen. Right. But I mean, the point is that he values and sees the depth and this guy's a psychoanalyst, but he sees the depth in the scripture and the power and the, the archetypes that are there. And, and just, he's, he's in awe, even though he hasn't professed to be a believer, he's in awe that these archetypes we're so right on that we cannot escape the stories that are laid out from the very beginning. So that's my little commercial for Genesis. Now I will refer back to it. So in this next nine weeks, um, you're going to want to dig. So Genesis, I would say Genesis one through 12, go and read through those because we're going to look at them, man. I'm telling you, we're going to get to Genesis six. We're going to look at some things that, that you're going to probably say, man, no one, I, I never heard that in my church, you know, and, and, and I'm telling you, I'm not saying things that Eric made up. I'm saying things that that scholars and many scholars have written peer reviewed articles in, you know, in, in the theology and seminaries. And these are those kind of ideas. We're not getting to those radical ideas quite yet, but there actually shouldn't be radical. It's just the Bible. But <laughs> the Bible is kind of radical and crazy. So here we are. It says what happens is they've sinned and at, and God has come on the scene and he's lined up the perpetrators. Okay, you got to go back and read it. He's got Adam, he's got Eve, and he's got the serpent. He's got them all lined up and he's basically like, we're going to get to the bottom of this. If you got kids, you know how this goes down, right? You get them all lined up. It's like, I got to hear the story, uh, you know, what happened. And then I'm going to lay out the, you know, we're going to meet out the, the judgment, right? So, and God's really merciful, honestly, in the way that it's handled. But there's one particular thing that's said in Genesis 3.15. He speaks to the serpent first, he's, and he says, he's talking to the serpent. Now, he's talking to Adam and Eve, but you have to understand right now, he, God is looking directly at the serpent. He's talking to him, to him, and Adam and Eve overhear this. And this promise, this is, is what I'm talking about, the promise. This is a promise. And this promise, it becomes one of the most driving forces in all of human history. And I don't think that's an overstatement. I'm sure there are many driving forces, but this promise right here is a driving force in human history, even up to today. Okay. He says to the serpent, he says, I'm going to put enmity, like you're going to be in enemies. There's going to be strife and struggling between you and the woman and between your offspring. So serpent, you're going to have offspring and her offspring. 
many of your Bibles will say between your seed and her seed. So if you hear me say seed, I'm saying offspring, seed, same thing. Okay. And then he says, he shall, so the offspring, this son of Eve is going to bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that is a radical, radical statement because now, you know, when I used to hear bruise, I'm like thinking, yeah, you know, I get a bruise. Sometimes I can't remember how I got a bruise. Like, how did I get that bruise again? That's not the kind of bruise we're talking about here. This is bruise as in crush, like as in uh, military men hiding out, waiting for their enemy, literally waiting, stalking. And then when, when it's just the right time, they pounce out and crush and destroy their enemy. I mean, like a lion that's waiting for his prey. And the, in that moment, the, the prey comes along and he leaps out and just absolutely destroys. So if your head is crushed, you're gone. So the enemy is being told here, there's a day coming and I'm not telling you when serpent, I'm going to make you paranoid, right? But it's, it's this idea of waiting at some point in time, there's going to be a son of Eve and he's going to crush your head. It's going to be the end of you, even though you think you're immortal, even though you tempted Adam and Eve saying, hey, I'm going to trick you guys into this because he knew that they were going to die. He said, no, God said, surely he didn't say you're going to die. He wanted them to die. You got to realize he was sneaking in. And one of his plans was I'm going to get them to actually agree with their own death. And in God's justice and righteousness, the only right thing to do in this moment would be to end the life of Adam and Eve, to kill them. Like, like he said, you shall die. So this is a powerful promise because Eve is hearing this and she's going, wait a minute, I'm going to have offspring. I don't even know if she knows what that means at the moment, but probably somehow she does. And that means that I'm not going to die, right? That means that there's a future for me in this moment. They're hearing the beginning of the gospel. This is the gospel in seed form, the gospel that there is one coming who's going to deliver you. So this is the beginning of the gospel. Now, of course, over time, the understanding of the gospel begins to fill out, but it's like a seed at this point. And so God is saying there's going to be this battle, but the, the son of Eve is also going to be wounded. Now, if you're, if you're struck by a serpent in that day, I would imagine if it's a poisonous serpent, it, it most likely could be a death blow. So to crush someone's head is really bad, but to be bruised on the heel by a serpent could very well mean your death. So we've got this understanding that there's going to be some kind of mutual destruction. Okay. Um, but this promise is, Hey, you're going to have a son. Now I'm going to, I'm going to skip this, but the Bible project has an awesome video on it. And I'm going to put a link out for you guys to go and watch this particular scene, um, with, with the serpent. I'm just going to kind of skip it because for time's sake. So you got to understand at this moment, there's a war that breaks out because God chooses not to kill. Now, Adam and Eve are going to die physically, but I do believe that they were not just supposed to die or um, they're going to die physically eventually. And, the, and they already in that moment, they died spiritually. They were cut off from God. So there was a death spiritually that they incurred. But I do believe they were supposed to actually die. And I'll explain that in just a moment. And so God is merciful. He makes a promise. He says, nope, there's going to be a son. He's going to come. And at this moment, now the serpent knows there's going to be an end to me. The woman is my enemy, right? 
she is my like this is terrifying but it kind of like herod what do you mean there's going to be a there's going to be somebody who's going to come along i've got to make sure this doesn't happen right so war breaks out just like god says there's going to be enmity and uh you know this is a painting that was done around the time of the birth of jesus i'm just kidding <laughs> yeah. so um oh my goodness hold on let me say remind me later once a software update so let me show you another picture of uh here we go there we go this this is about what the war looks like if you've ever seen the terminator <laughs> because this i'm thinking this is about the mindset of the serpent right now he's going look if you've ever seen the terminator right you got to understand you know first of all this is one thing about it the terminator never wins right <laughs> he's so far he hasn't won okay but the other thing is his plan was to go into the future and to kill what's his name john uh john connor thank you oh my gosh we got somebody in the room who's saved me john connor he, the, the Terminator's plan, or at least they send a Terminator in the future to kill the mom before John Connor's born. So, I mean, it's a basic plan, right? Let's kill the woman before she can even have the child. Now, I'm not going to go into this, but human history is littered with a hatred of women. And, and, and you can see it even in different cultures today. Some would say it's in America, but I mean, I, I'm telling you there's... <laughs> Women have got it pretty good. But when you when you look at some other cultures and you see the oppression of women, you get today, not just throughout human history, there is a terror of women, a fear of women and an objectification of women that I believe is rooted. It's like this paranoia in the heart of men. And the further you go towards the Middle East, the more you see it because it, that's where the birthplace is, is, is on the soil. I mean, that the birthplace of human history is really there in the Fertile Crescent. So anyway, I'm not saying the serpent is the Terminator, but might as well be, because I gotta tell you, um, that was his plan. And you can see it even if you read the Bible, over and over, he's trying to destroy the seed. Now, I would bet he tried to, you know, he tried to take Eve out, but uh, yeah, we don't know. God doesn't tell us about how, how it went, but, every son she had created paranoia and fear in the serpent and you got to understand so i believe you know the scriptures and the devil's real you know and and the serpent is he wasn't just some snake slithering around and we're going to talk about that later not just some snake in the garden okay this is it's not just like you know some little cartoon going on and he's a real being that Paul, the apostles, they all believed in. And I think honestly, it doesn't take a prophet to look around our world today and ask yourself, why, why is there the level of evil and deception, deceit that's going on? There's so many things, but anyway, that's, that's for you to, to think about, but I'm just gonna read Revelation 12. This is the end of the book. And maybe I won't read the whole thing, but this is about a war that breaks out in heaven. And it talks about this great sign that appears in heaven. And there's a woman who's clothed with, with um, I can't read fully right there, but it says with the sun and the moon is under her feet. Now, if you go back and you remember how, how um, I was referring to the time of Herod and the Magi coming, that was what they saw in the stars. They actually saw this. Now, I don't believe that this is just talking about that moment in time, but if you look at the star charts, I haven't looked directly at them, but I've heard the testimony of the time that Jesus Christ was most likely born, they can see in the stars what was happening and what was aligning that would have caused 
these kings or these not really kings, but these magi to realize something profound and prophetic is happening. It was a very rare event, something that never would have happened in their lifetime. But this piece would happen every so many years where the woman is clothed and, and you know, the sun is rising, even though when the sun is out, we can't see the constellations, but they're there. So if you were seeing the sun rising, they would see the constellation behind it because they know like in their mind, they can picture it there. There's the Virgin and the sun is rising. The moon is at her feet representing the birth, a birth. And then the lion is at her head, which is the king. And there's 12 stars because three of them are planets. But to us, they look like stars, right? So three planets were in alignment at that point in time that caused it to look like 12 stars were crowning her head, which goes all the way back to Joseph as well. There's 12. That's a whole different deal. But so she's pregnant. She's crying out in birth pains and agony. And then there's a great dragon. I got to make this little joke because heard it many times. At the beginning, he starts off as a little serpent. But by the end, he's a big old dragon. And <laughs> somebody's been feeding that sucker, you know? So, okay. So here we are and it's a dragon and, and he appears and obviously it's the enemy. And this is Genesis 3.15 playing out. There he is. He's furious. He sweeps down a third of the stars, which supposedly uh, we don't know fully, but it might be when he actually deceived uh, a third of the angels because the stars in that time, they were understanding stars as being angels. They weren't thinking of balls of gas in the sky. Even when they looked up and they saw the stars in the sky, people didn't know. Um, they didn't know what we know. And so it doesn't make it less real or true, but they were understanding these stars even as, as angels as angels that are set in the sky that are that are actually marking times and seasons that's a whole nother thing and we'll probably get into it a little later not to, tonight but so he sweeps them down and she gives birth and then basically he tries to get her but god protects her and so he's furious okay and and i'm gonna flip forward and and when he sees that he's been thrown down and he can't get the woman basically um, the Lord does all these things to protect her and to protect the offspring. So he goes off in his fury and his anger to make war with the rest of her offspring. Okay. And also those who keep the testimony of Jesus. So he's talking about Israel, the people of Israel, actual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, but also people who are Christians who believe in the name of Christ who now are grafted into that vine. And uh, I think there's a lot to be found in that story. I just want to make the point that there's a war going on. Okay, I, I wrote a bunch of stuff there. That was random. But okay, so now I'm going to pause and I'm going to kind of go back just for a second. So just trying to give you a picture. This war goes on to the very end. It goes on past our lives, okay? Jesus on the cross defeats the serpent, but there, there is a lot that has not been enforced in the earth yet today. Okay, so Genesis 3.21, I have to point this out. The Lord made for Adam and Eve uh, skins and he clothed them. I just got to close this one up here because when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, remember I said that they should have been killed and the enemy wants their death. This is, is one little sentence that gives us, if you, if you just stop and really think about what's going on here. In the garden, there were animals um, we know Adam and Eve, Adam was, was meant to, 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 uh, name all the animals. And as far as we know, there was no death. 
So where does God get the skin to clothe Adam and Eve before he sends them out? Because they have to be sent out of the garden because if they eat of the tree of life, then they're going to live forever. And it would actually be torture because now they're, they're fallen beings and now they could live forever. Um, so, <laughs> oh, those are themes that we're going to come back around to. But one of the things is that he clothes them, which means that God takes one of those innocent animals in that garden. We don't know which one. And he kills it right in front of their face. And, and I don't, some of y'all maybe have never been around an animal killed, or, you know, if you're a guy, maybe, you know, you remember the first time you, you are around an animal killed, or you went hunting. And the first time, you know, this, there, there's this experience of, of loss of innocence or, or, you know, where you feel it like the first time that, that you see life taken from an animal, especially if you're young. Um, and I'm thinking they're kind of like young kids in a way. And, and there's this level of innocence that we can't fathom. Okay. So even as a young kid, if you're, you're around a moment and you see your dog get killed, or maybe you actually killed the animal or whatever it might be. And they have, I, I just can't imagine the horrible feeling they've got, but what God's doing is saying, this is supposed to be you guys, but I'm showing you mercy. And in, in your place, I'm taking the life of this animal in the blood because life is in the blood and the blood is poured out. Okay. And he takes the skin and he covers them with the skin of that animal. So this becomes a practice all throughout Israel's history. You see that there's eventually priests, there's a temple, there are sacrifices. It's substitutionary atonement where they would make sacrifices and Passover and the different festivals, the, the day of atonement, and the, the, the sacrifices were supposed to take the place of the worshiper so that instead of me having to die for my sin, this animal would die for my sin or die for the sins of the nation. That happened in the Garden of Eden, and, and it became more and more pronounced over time as God released more revelation. But I believe Adam and Eve learned that day about the need for sacrifice, the need for atonement, and that the promise was that one day there will be one who is going to pay that price. And at this moment, they didn't know it was going to be Eve's son, her future son, Jesus, who was going to die. He's going to pay because the, the remember the, the serpent is going to bruise his heel, but also someone has to die for that sin because the blood of bulls and goats, like Hebrew says, will never be enough to cover our sin. It was really only like a, 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 a kind of like a down payment, if you will. So even in Genesis 3.15, it's like a down payment. God saying, I'm just and I'm righteous. And in my justice, I, we don't like unjust judges. I don't know if you guys have watched the news lately, but when you see things happening that are criminal and nobody gets prosecuted for it, we say that that's evil. We say that's unrighteous. So when it comes to God, that God would not. So we think, you know, how could God, you know, punish people? How could he punish? But the real question actually is, how could God, the righteous judge, not punish? And I know that might sound harsh, but, but if you're standing on the other side and you're the victim or you see the victim and you watch a judge or you watch the police or you watch somebody just say, hey, we're not even going to bring it to court. We're not, we're not going to do anything about it. The sense of injustice is unbearable. And the sense of evil will, even if you don't believe in God, you'd be like, that is evil, man. 
wait a minute, that, that, that just happened and you just let it go. So God is not evil. He's righteous and he's just, it's just our perspective that's skewed because we happen to be the ones that perpetrate, right? We happen to be the ones that are on the side, not just the victim, but we are actually the aggressor. We're the ones who have actually committed sin. So, you know, this idea of substitutionary atonement goes all the way back to this moment. And God in his mercy saying, I'm, I'm making a down payment right now, but in my righteousness, somebody has to pay the full price. A man has to die for a man. No one can pay the price for you. No bull, no, no, whatever he killed, no lamb, nothing can pay the price for your own soul, but you, unless someone else pays it for you, but they have to be perfect. Otherwise they got to pay their own debt, you know? So here we go. I had to share that. So <laughs> it's just powerful, but here's another little dilemma. I wrote this in there. Um, you just got to consider there's, there's this dilemma that that enters in though consider this if if one of eve's sons eventually and and they began to understand this along the way before the days of jesus there was that longing remember that groaning for a messiah uh, not just a king but a king who would deliver them throughout the history of israel there was an understanding that someone was going to come and restore it's called the restoration the restoration of the kingdom the disciples when Jesus, after he came back, even they were asking him, when are you going to restore the kingdom? They weren't just looking for their souls to be saved. They were looking for all of creation to be restored. So that understanding, I don't know how well Adam and Eve understood it, but it started in seed form in, in the garden. When God was saying, you're going to have a son and he's going to conquer the serpent. There was a level of understanding that they understood. And you can see it in the patriarchs. And I don't know if I'll get to it. Oh man, because we're at an hour, so I might have to pick it up next week. But but we see this growing sense that there's going to be one who's born who's going to restore the garden, going to restore what was lost. But the problem is, how can Adam and Eve have a son who is going to be able to actually conquer the serpent when Adam and Eve were sinless at that moment in time? When they fell, they had no sin. And they were in a perfect environment, no stress, no strain, nothing. Everything was perfect. So you're telling me that Adam and Eve are going to have an, have one of their offspring at some point in time could be, they, and they didn't know it could be their first son. It could be Cain for all they knew, literally. Um, but how is it possible now in this broken environment, creation is at odds. There's a brokenness between animals and humanity between man and woman. They're not just hiding from God. They're hiding from one another. There's a brokenness in creation itself. Romans, Paul says, all of creation is groaning because it's, it's under the weight of sin. There, sin has entered in not just to humanity, but it's actually affected creation itself. And so how can we have this where there's a man born who, who is born to sinful parents and, and he doesn't have the benefit of having walked with God and seen God face to face. And, and the world is broken and messed up and he's going to do what Adam couldn't do. It begs the question, who is this guy? How could he possibly do that? To me, I think it's a foreshadowing of the fact that it, it, it can't just be a man. It's got to be God. Only God can do that. I mean, what man born to Adam and Eve? And you see it over and over. They have offspring, even David. Is he the one? But man, he's a broken man. 
He's a bro. He does amazing things, but it turns out he's infected. He's got the venom, the poison of the serpent flowing in his veins. He, he, he cannot conquer the serpent because he has been infected himself. So who's going to do it? Well, that's the beauty. The gospel is that Jesus is not just a man. He's fully man, but he's God. He's God himself. And that's something we'll get to as well. And for some, that might be a radical idea, but he's not just a God. He's not just divine. He is equal with God himself. He is fully God. Just as much as the father is God, Jesus is, is God. They are one, like he, he taught. And that was what they crucified him for. They were jealous and he was claiming to be God, which is a big no-no in, in Israel. I mean, if you're a polytheist, that's no big thing. But if you're a monotheist in, in Israel, that's a big thing. So, oh, there we go. The dilemma is how could Eve's seed conquer the serpent? So I, I don't know uh, if you want, if you want me to, I, I, yeah. Okay. Cause I think I can, I would like to kind of try to wrap this one up. I think you get the gist. Yeah. Um, and, and so that next week I could kind of pick up with, with um, not, not with part two of this. So I'm just going to kind of run fast because I went off on all other points, but, but there was this hope in Adam and Eve that possibly not only were they promised and did they realize, Hey, look, we're not going to die, but there was a hope that one of their sons, but they didn't know, could it be Cain? Could it be Cain? Would it be Cain who would, but no, Cain blows it. I can't go into it, but you see the blood sacrifice his brother brings isn't good enough. Cain, he doesn't bring a blood sacrifice but he kills his brother, um, which portends the future Christ. And that's a whole nother. There's foreshadowing of Jesus everywhere you look. But here we see no way because Cain couldn't, he's the firstborn, but he, he's obviously, he just murdered, he just murdered his brother. So it can't be able. So it, it turns out to be Seth. So I got a little, um, actually, this is funny because this is from an atheist's website, but he did a great job on this genealogy. So I appreciate that. Um, so Adam, um, has Seth. And I'm not going to go through it, but Genesis 5 has all the first point. It will be, be like, so-and-so had so-and-so, you know, was the father of so-and-so. And then after that, they had more children. Every time it's the firstborn, that is the one that's carrying the, um, what, what I would say is, is, it's not just the patriarch, but they're carrying the blessing. They're carrying that, that heir. Like I said, that Jesus had the, he was the heir to the throne. They were carrying that right to the throne in a sense. And I'm not saying to a throne to the king uh, because there wasn't a king yet, but each one of them. So if you go Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahalo, and then Jared, Enoch, you've probably heard of Enoch. Methuselah is the one who lived the longest um, of anybody. Lamech, and then there's Noah. Okay. So Noah, you have to realize there are many people on earth at this point, but Noah is a direct firstborn descendant of Seth. Okay. So if God had wiped out, he could have wiped out the earth at that moment in time, but he wouldn't have been keeping his Genesis 3.15 promise. He promised she was going to have a son. And he promised that that son was going to conquer. So in a, in a sense, I believe that theoretically God, I mean, I guess he's God, he can do anything, but God holds himself to his own promises. And so Shem, Noah, Noah makes it. And Noah is not just any dude. Noah is a direct descendant 
going back one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, he's, he's the eighth out from, or ninth out from, from Adam. Okay. So he is that direct descendant. It's not just some random tree line out there. You got to understand there is a very purposeful reason why they pay so much time to the uh, attention to the genealogy, because the people were looking for the one. They didn't understand the future, the kings and all that, but they were looking for that one. Who's it going to be? Noah's name actually means to bring rest. He's the one who was prophesied over. He's going to bring rest to the land because the curse was, was on the land, right? And, and on the toil of our hands. So Noah actually had a prophetic promise, and, but he turns out to not be the one. He almost is, right? He, God uses him and almost creates a new creation. There's the flood, start over, but it, Noah's not the dude. You know, like it, it goes south real quick. Uh, if you read it, but Noah's son Shem is, and so Noah prophesies over Shem. And I, I know I could get crazy about this and we're not going to go through all this, but Shem is the one that's prophesied over in this really funky thing that happens. that we'll talk about a little bit more, uh, between the brothers and Noah. And there's this moment in time where God prophesies over Shem saying, you're going to rule over your brothers and over Canaan. Okay. So it goes through Shem. Now you got to go understand Abraham. If you ever heard of Abraham, he's the father of the faith and people say, well, you know, he's just some random pagan out there. Well, I mean, maybe he was, uh, you know, he was in Babylon. It, it was about a hundred, a little over a hundred years after the tower. It was a, it was a big city, big empire, polytheistic, all that. But Abraham was a direct descendant from Shem and Shem was still alive when Abram was alive. Now, Abram, you know, Shem, the sons, when they came off the flood, they still lived. Noah was still alive, I think, when Abram was born. That's pretty crazy. Okay. So nobody else after that lived as long. Abram lived, I think, to like 120. But you've got to realize that Abram is a direct descendant of Shem. God calls him out. I don't know if he was walking with God before, if he was following the traditions from passed on from Noah and Shem, but there were those according to, to, to rabbinic traditions that were, and there are many rabbis that do believe that Abram knew of his, of his uh, you know, great grandfather or whatever it is, Noah. I would imagine that whenever God called him out at some point in time, this is conjecture, but that he hooked up with Shem and Noah, but especially Shem, and probably got the, the, the DL on you know, this whole uh, uh, Yahweh thing, right? Because he was still alive. So you've got to realize that this, this legacy passed on, um, it, it wasn't, it was a long period of time, but it was passed on by mouth from, from Adam. And then you get, you get, it's only a couple of generations. You got Methuselah that overlaps the life of Adam and the life of Noah. So, you know, here's, here's Noah and he's able to talk to dudes who have like second hand information of the garden of Eden and, and Genesis. It's not like thousands of years ago, he could go talk to his grandpa who knew Adam, who knew God face to face. Okay. It's passed on to Noah. Noah's carrying this knowledge and it's passed on to Abraham. Okay. That's, that's like, I don't know, 2000 years there or, or well over a thousand years. Um, and, and then you've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, you've got Jacob, and then you've got the 12 sons. Okay. There, I, I can't go into it the way I'd like to. But there is power in the way that blessings passed on. Abraham passes the blessing on to Isaac. Isaac 
passes the blessing on not to Esau, but to Jacob, because Jacob steals the blessing. Isaac says, can't you bless me? And, and, and um, uh, Esau says that Esau says that to Isaac and Isaac's like, Hey, I, I can't. It's like, I gave it away. I laid hands on your brother. He tricked me and I laid hands on him and I blessed him. So Jacob becomes the heir. He becomes the one, even though it was foreordained, it's a radical thing. And he's the one that carries that blessing. He's the one now. Is he the one? Is he the one one? We don't know. Did they know? Were they wondering? There was some understanding that someday there was an offspring that was going to conquer. Okay. So that blessing gets passed on, but Jacob has 12 sons. It's kind of tricky. He has 12 sons. This is like the genealogy here. Start off Abraham. You got Isaac. You got Jacob. You got these 12 sons from different wives. I mean, it's messy. You've got concubines. You got all this stuff. But um, that's a whole nother story. But Judah turns out at the end of Jacob's life, he prophesies over all of his sons. And this is how you know that this is not the choice of man. You see, Abraham, he, he didn't choose Isaac. Actually, he went out and he kind of created his own little Ishmael, right? But God has Isaac in mind, okay? Then Isaac, he loves Esau, but God chooses Jacob. If it was up to Isaac, he would have released the blessing. And they, at the time, ha somehow had the power to literally lay hands at the end of their life and pass this blessing on to that next son. And it's like something happened, man. And if it was up to Isaac, he would have done that over Esau. But God chose Jacob. And Jacob, he's got all these sons, but God, Jacob loved Joseph. Joseph was his absolute favorite. So, you know, if it was up to Jacob at the end of their life, when he had all 12 sons together, he would have given that blessing to Joseph. And, and there are actually good reasons for that because the wife he wanted to marry was Rachel. And he was the firstborn of Rachel. I bet you Jacob was thinking in his head, man, I mean, this works, Lord. Like he's the firstborn of Rachel. He's the son that I love. But when he prophesies over all of his sons, he prophesies over Judah. And Judah is the one who he says, the scepter shall not depart from your hand. Judah is the one, you go back and read the prophecy. Oh man, I don't know what just happened there. But anyway, um, you go back and you read the prophecy and uh, you see that it's prophesied. So the understanding is the tribe of Judah. David is from the tribe of Judah. I might've lost you all on this, but I hope not. But David is from that lineage. It had to be, a son that comes from Judah. And then when David is born, he is of the tribe of Judah. So you see, we're coming back around fully to the connection of the house of David, because you start in Genesis 3.15, that bloodline doesn't just go back to David. It goes all the way back to the garden. That's why there was one king before David. It was Saul. Okay, I know I went past five minutes. I'm gonna stop here. Saul was the one king before David. But Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Saul could not be the, he, he actually, it was not ordained. So David, if that makes sense, he, he was rejected as king, but he never was of the tribe of Judah. It was never God's intention to have Saul, but it was his intention to have a king. It was just not his timing. And it was judgment on Israel and, and also on Benjamin. If you read about the tribe of Benjamin, um, so he's from that tribe, 
but there's no way that genealogy could carry on according to God's promises. So in God's amazing way, David ends up being the king. And we lead all the way up to Matthew chapter one. And here's Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. You go all the way back. He is a direct descendant. So it's not just that he's carrying that blessing that comes from David. He's carrying the blessing that came from the mouth of God that was put upon Adam and that God told them in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to restore it through you. And there's a war that's going on. And so I wanted to point out, and I don't know, like that might've been a lot of a, a blitz for you if you never heard that before, but I think it gives a lot of legitimacy to who Jesus is. It's not just some random guy. These aren't a bunch of random people. They're historically mentioned in many texts throughout history, um, but especially, you know, Jesus. But the further back you go, um, so hopefully it's not just this big blitz if you go back, because now when we go back the next couple of weeks or however many weeks, we're going to look at some of these in-depth stories. We're not going to get into a lot of genealogy, but it's going to start to make sense to you the importance of the bloodline and how that bloodline plays into some of these stories and the war, the battle that's going on that heats up all the way to the time of Christ, but has not stopped. If anything, it has gotten even hotter and hotter and hotter as the days are going on because there is a war between the seed. Because if you're in Christ, you're in this seed, you're in the offspring and you have a target marked on you by the enemy. He hates your guts. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you're his enemy. You see what I'm saying? If you're in Christ, you're in Adam, you're in Abraham, you're in this genealogy. You've been grafted in, not by biology, not by genetics, but by faith. Because this is the last thing here. I'm going to end on this. What did Abraham believe? What did Adam and Eve believe? They believed they would have a son, right? Abraham, he was not saved by his works. It's, that's what Paul says in Romans. He's nobody saved by what they do. Not even these guys. It wasn't even Moses and all of them, not by the law, but it was because they believed in a promise. God promised Adam and Eve. How were they saved? They were saved. I'm sure they were saved because they believed God's promise that they would have a son. They didn't know. They didn't know as much as the prophets knew later. But what did Abraham believe? He believed he was going to have a son of supernatural birth, which actually he really faltered on that, right? But of supernatural birth, Sarah was barren and God opened her womb. She, and she was, she was 99. She was past childbearing age. She supernaturally had a baby, just like Mary, right? He believes he's going to have a son. And not only that, the son was going to be sacrificed and is given back to him. That's the gospel. They believed the gospel early on. They just didn't have all the details. But if you're in Christ, it's because you have faith in that same promise that God sent his son and that it's not over. He's not just a baby in a manger. He's, he's not just a little baby in the crib and he's not, in, he's not just in heaven. Like Misty Edward says, he's not staying in heaven forever. He's coming back. <laughs> you know, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so if you believe that by faith, then you're in Christ, but that means you're also in a battle and the war is not over. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more in the days to come. And that's it. So sorry, went a little over on that, but I wanted to get that foundation down.